Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. Today I'm going to meet with Brian Hills. Brian is the Deputy CEO and Head of Service Design at the Data Lab based in Scotland. Hello, Brian, and welcome to the show. Brian, you're the Deputy CEO and Head of Service Design at the Data Lab based in Scotland. And I would like to know how you got there. Hi, Peter. Thanks for the invitation to take part. So I I guess at the uh, very beginning, when I was a a schoolboy growing up in the Highlands of Scotland, my friends started to get these things called uh, Sinclair Spectrums and Commodores. And uh, I used to go around to theirs to play computer games. And then I asked my parents for one and and I, I ended up being the outlier. They bought me an Amstrad CPC 464. <laughs> um, the thing that fascinated me about that was how does how do people build these games um, and how do you you know code to do that? And that kind of was the main influence for thinking about actually it'd be really great to learn how you build things on computers, whether it's games or other things. And I developed an interest there. So it kind of kicked off my interest in computing, but also I really like to do art and modern studies and and ended up going to University of Aberdeen to study a Master's of Arts in Computing, which was slightly unusual. There was two of us on that, but it essentially allowed us to, in our first two years, intersect um, learning some of the computing stuff with some more than humanities stuff. So I did the likes of history of art, economics, and some management combined with the the, uh, the technical stuff, which was really, uh, really good. And in the third year there, I got a, a placement with Hewlett Packard, who had a big it was a factory uh, in South Queensbury, uh, just outside Edinburgh. There's an internship there working in their telecoms team, building a, a test and measurement system. And then they invited me back after I um, got my degree to work in a new team and set up there. So first job was really building real-time monitoring systems for telecoms, particularly focusing on international mobile traffic. Um, so I learned about building systems, building real-time systems, and then we got into thinking about, well, if we actually stored that real-time data, we could do lots of other valuable things for customers with it by storing it in a warehouse and doing analysis off the top. So that got me interested in the data analysis side. I spent four years there, a couple of years then uh, in academia. So working in a project at University of Edinburgh, we recruited a team of us who had been in industry building systems, and they wanted to apply that knowledge and thinking to building an academia focused on grid computing at the time and working with scientists like in astronomy and others. So how do you build large-scale data systems across a grid to process astronomy data sets, for example? Spent a couple of years there and then moved back into industry, a company called Sumerian. So that was really focusing on understanding and analyzing data from across large-scale IT infrastructures. So we were looking to predict when, for example, a bank on a particular service might have uh, outage and help them to identify that and take measures before it happened. Can I develop from being analytical and engineering there into more of the team lead and leadership piece? And from there, I then moved to Skyscanner, where I was uh, leading the business intelligence team, creating, scaling that over a couple of years. So to serve both internally across the organization, all the teams, but also to look at building new data products uh, that we offer to customers. And then after that, getting to the end of the journey, there was a, an opportunity <laughs> to help get involved in setting this thing up called the Data Lab, 
And I went to a conference and I saw the interim CEO present on it. There was a really good concept. How do we help the country at a national scale benefit more from data economically and socially? Um, and his last slide was a typical, and we're recruiting. I had a coffee with him and within the next month, I joined the data lab to help start that up. Really at the beginning, it was looking at product, looking at how we get started and where we focus. And now in my current role, it's thinking about with the services that we've got, how do we scale them to have wider impact in the country? What are the new opportunities and, and how do we work best across the large developing ecosystem for data and AI in Scotland to, to help deliver our mission for the country? I'd like to get back a little bit to the point where you talked about art history and computing, because that must have been one of the early courses that were offered in that respect, because I don't recall from my university years that we had anything like this. How did you find out about it and how did you get into that course? I mean, you mentioned there were only two of you. When I was at school, I was interested in so many things and I, I just loved art. I loved just immersing myself in painting and drawing as much as I loved immersing myself in building things and, and computing. I think it was just researching different types of degrees. You know, I went on university visits to Edinburgh and Harriet Watt and St Andrews and others. And I think the, the ability to, Aberdeen were offering, you register with a faculty, but you can choose a selection of different courses to build up your credits in the first years. That, that was the attractiveness of it. It was a bit weird in the sense that you go from a computing lecture and then in the afternoon you go to a history of art lecture. It was uh, a good learning experience, I think. Is there anything in particular that you think you can use in your today's job from that combination? I think the creativity aspect of it and thinking about how we create things, how we test and how we experiment. But I think we're probably seeing a wider movement now of bringing these humanities data and tech together. I mean, certainly big movement there in AI and bringing those with humanities expertise into the field to think about the ethical implications and how you create responsible tech. So I think we are starting to see a convergence in those areas now, which I think is great. Thanks very much, Brian. So you alluded to a little bit what Data Lab is and your role as uh, head of data, head of service design. But can you explain a little bit more what that role actually entails? So Data Lab is one of eight innovation centres funded by the Scottish Government. So we've got partners in the Scottish Funding Council who uh, fund universities and colleges. Uh, the enterprise agency, Scottish Enterprise, Hills and Hills Enterprise and the government collaborate and fund us. And fundamentally, our mission is to help Scotland maximise value from data and lead the world to a data powered future. And so, you know, that that's a lofty mission, but it kind of sets the, the ambition of what we want to do in, in the context of the things that we develop. An early example might be the first thing that landed on my desk, actually, six years ago, was we have funding for a master's programme. Can you get it off the ground in three months? And by the way, it's, it's 40 places across three universities. So the universities would be the delivery mechanism, but we need to bring them together. At that point, I was thinking that there's no point in trying to define the perfect data course and ask the universities to deliver it. The universities won't work that way. And what we've been able to do is, is think about how we bring the universities and the students and the industry and the public sector together. So ultimately, you know, how many of those students can we get into employment in Scotland? And through thinking about and, and doing things like placing those students into industry for placements and doing recruitment milk rounds and doing employability training and a whole host of other things, we've been able to build a tight network between the universities and the employers. 
based on the success of that, we had 40 students across three universities to start off with. Then we went to 90 students, 120, and we're now at 155 students across 12 universities. Before COVID hit, we last year we placed 100 of those students into industry for their um, dissertation and placement. It really enables companies to, to benefit from that talent and experiment, and also for the student to understand what it's like working, applying those skills into industry. And this year, you know, obviously an impact. I thought maybe we'd have to pause that part of the program, but actually had about 35 online placements, which has been great because it's enabled us to do, for example, remote placements into the Highlands and Inverness and other areas that may not normally have been able to do that. So I looked at the innovations and the portfolio, the data lab house, and one of the things that stood out to me is which that deals with cancer innovation. And can you take us through a concrete example of how the data lab helps innovation in that area? Cancer Innovation Challenge was a, a specific challenge that we were funded to run from the Scottish Government. It was run in the form of an SBRI competition. So it was bringing together industry providers with the clinicians and, and health boards and really to see if we could use tech and data innovation to help those clinicians uh, and health boards in the treatment of patients. There's a couple of outputs uh, I can share with you. The first one was um, looking at patient reported outcome measures. So an organization that we funded called My Clinical Outcomes uh, was awarded funding through that challenge to develop a platform for collecting oncology proms. So if I'm undergoing treatment and I meet my clinician uh, and then I go home, the ability for me to log how I'm feeling day to day or any changes and for the clinician to be able to see that uh, rather than wait to the next appointment two weeks down the line or a month down the line, et cetera. And then the clinician to then understand how things could be or should be altered in forms of treatments or changing the appointment dates, all that kind of stuff. They ran an initial project with NHS Ayrshire and Aaron, supporting patients undergoing chemotherapy and hematological cancer. And now they've done five projects and are working with NHS to do a national rollout. So it's been really successful. Uh, which has been fantastic, you know, bringing together those clinicians who know the subject matter inside mm. out, getting the patient view and working with the health boards has been really successful. A second example that I'll just touch upon was with Canon Medical Research. You have a research centre in Edinburgh, an NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. So this was looking at uh, applying deep learning to understand patients' response to treatment for MPN cancer. So that's an asbestos-related cancer. There's a high incidence in the UK, but it's really difficult to diagnose through manual image inspection. And so it's really to augment the knowledge of the clinicians in this space. Um, and they were able to develop algorithms around that space and, and test them out with the clinicians. I would like to go back to skills and talents. There's so much work happening in AI and ML today. Do we still actually have a lack of skills in this area? Because it's been around now for a while and people have been drumming up support and a lot of people get excited in there. Do you still see a gap there? I think we definitely do. You know, we are from an employment side, we are seeing organizations that really need this talent and find it difficult to access it and know how to connect into that talent, which is where we've been helping with. We're seeing changes in the types of talent that there's a demand for. What do you mean by that? If I think about maybe five years ago when I first started Data Lab, data science was the was the focus and you know, you had the article from DJ Patil in the Harvard Business Review that declared data scientist as a, the sexiest job of the 20, 20th century, <laughs> 21st century. That kind of kicked off a whole fad. But now what we're seeing is subtleties to that. 
for example, data engineering, which I think is probably closely linked to research software engineering, the, the demand for those skills is starting to exceed those of data scientists. So companies are realizing to be able to do the data science and the analysis and have those impacts, you need consistent, timely, correct data coming into those teams, and you need to build solid pipelines at scale. And so what we're seeing now is a, a demand for that talent. I think the other thing that we are seeing is a demand for leaders in this space who can lead those initiatives successfully and de deliver successful outcomes. I think that's a timing piece. Often I'm seeing in job adverts now that if you want to be a senior data leader, you need to have come technical background and have applied the algorithms, have machine learning expertise and all that kind of stuff. Just given the time lag and developing that talent and coming through, the, the, more of those leaders are starting to emerge. It's not simply a case of cross-training a manager to be a manager of data. I think a lot of the job specs we're seeing is you had to have a, be a practitioner before you can then become a leader. When people think about AI and machine learning, they think about algorithms and the actual architecture. But you mentioned that the data engineering is equally important. Is it equally? Is it 50-50? Or where would you see the balance sits? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one to put a number on. Um, well, let's say it's 50-50 in the context that, you know, if you don't have that data coming through accurately and timely, the outputs that you get from applying any analysis or data science to are compromised significantly. If you don't have that in place, then it's kind of like building your company or your house on sand. At some point, something negative is going to happen. 50-50 or even more than 50-50 now, I think. But I think overlapping that, maybe bridging both of those from, you know, a lot of the stuff we've been seeing recently is the awareness of the distribution of those data sets in terms of what is that data? Where are the biases in the data and, and the properties of that that should be considered uh, and we've seen plenty of examples in the popular press of analysis that's been based on data, but the engineers, the data scientists have never really thought about the, the biases or the construction of the raw data. And I think that's a bridge that both on the engineering side and the data science side, both camps need to be aware of documenting as they build systems. You mentioned working with university and industry together. What kind of causes and what kind of training do you think universities need to do that they aren't doing today and how are you helping them to get there in terms of the master's portfolio that we have we have an open invitation to apply for those uh, and then we have a board that chooses them and it's essentially building a portfolio of different types so we have data science for business that's offered by sterling with a much more business approach and then they have a, a technical course as well or if we go to, across to caledonian and glasgow they do a deep learning course so highly techie so there's there's a balance between highly technical courses, uh, those with more business focus. We're doing a sports data science one now with Harriet Watt. I think what we're seeing is the emergence of lots of data science courses and different types of applications into domains, which is great. But I think what I recognize, especially in a master's piece, is that over the course of 10 months or a year, you're teaching the students a core set of tools. And the thing that's probably missing there is how do you apply those tools in reality? We had honest feedback from employers who said, you know, uh, we've taken placements from students that you've given us. They thought the data was going to all be prepared and they could take their machine learning toolbox out and apply it and do some algorithm stuff. But actually what we wanted to do them first was clean the data and they didn't want to do it. So that, that reality of what you learn being translated into when you go into industry, public sector, or, or even further academic piece, uh, bridging that gap, I think is important. 
I think we're two areas that I specifically see a gap just now in where we operate. Again, picking up the last one, data engineering, a lot of focus on data science, minimal courses on data engineering. So in Scotland, Napier and D offer dedicated courses in that space, but I think there's a need for more. And the second element, I think, where there's a gap is applied data ethics. And so what we're seeing in universities at the moment is when we talk about ethics, it's probably more how you uh, conduct ethical research, which is absolutely important. But thinking about also, again, when you take a, a role in an organization, how you think about the data you're using and scrape that data and process that data with ethical viewpoints in mind, I think is an imperative thing that we need, we need more of which is uh, a big focus on that across the world at the moment. And we've collaborated with Edinburgh to do a specific online course for that. So all of our students are mandated to, to do the ethical online course we've developed to top up those skills. And that's a nice segue into the next set of questions that I actually have around data ethics. And I would like to start off what we actually mean by that. What, what does, when people say data ethics, what does that mean to you, Brian? The key thing here is your value set your values as a person and organization. And I think this is where maybe there's a gap at the moment. As part of an organization, the values and the culture that you have uh, drives how you want to or should interact with your customers, clients, or your peers, or, or whatever it is. That is the fundamental element of thinking about how you use data in the right way for your organization, your customers, and citizens. When you say the right way, could you give us a concrete example of what that might look like. So what would be a wrong way and how would you actually turn this into a right way? This is all very blurry, of course, uh, and this is why it's important because of the, the, I think, the involvement of the humanities who have the experience of discussing, debating both sides of, a, of an argument. If I'm a, a product person working with a set of data engineers, maybe I am creating a product with data and uh, I want to deliver a specific thing. Well, let's take a Facebook example. It's actually a great learning case. You know, I think there'll be a lot of research on Facebook in the future and, and how they've set mm -hmm. the way of thinking about this. So an example I like to think about is your past year in summary feature. It was developed by a product manager and a team to summarize your last year and show you the highlights of your last year. On principles, that's a good thing because I, I go into Facebook and it gives me the summary of the last year and that's all great. What that team didn't consider was that not everybody's experience is a positive one across a year. Um, and they developed the feature and immediately when it was released, it had a lot of negative feedback because people's lives invariably, uh, as we get older with experience, are not always positive. And users were being faced with logging on and seeing, for example, a highlight of their year was maybe somebody in their family who died or a funeral or a pet dying or, or lots of other things that they'd posted. In that example, you know, you think about when you're designing a product and working across product management, engineering and data science, you know, it sounds like a great idea, but actually testing out, is it the right thing to do? What, what are the side effects of this? What could go wrong? And there's a lot of frameworks now that have been developed to help groups who are developing software and new features and doing analysis to give them the framework to ask those difficult questions. I think that needs to be baked into a lot more of what we do in, in tech. And the challenge, of course, is projects were often under tight timescales. You know, we've got the requirements, we're doing it in an agile way, but there's dates we need to hit. 
and then folding one more thing into the process to think about side effects, ethical implications, etc., can be squeezed you know, at a management level. So I think it's imperative to talk about these things with senior leaders and, and understand why it's important to adopt and test out an ethical framework while you're developing software and analysis. That was actually one of my questions. Uh, how can we avoid having these kind of difficult questions to be asked to turn into a checkbox ticking exercise? Right. So I've done this tick. I've done that tick. Now I'm ethical. Yes. And I think what we've seen in, in the first wave, uh, let's say in the last couple of years, is that there's lots of frameworks and, and tick boxes. There's got to be a balance. If it's too complicated, then the path to adoption of that in a lot of businesses would be impeded. And I think what we're seeing now is there are frameworks with fundamental principles and toolkits. So rather than checkboxes, thinking about a toolkit to adopt and test in the development of your product. And they are, they kind of strip it down so that it's easy to test within your team and promote to managers to be able to use this stuff as well. And, and I think the toolkit methodologies is the, is the approach to take. When I've talked about this in the past, the piece that I, I recommend most to data scientists to start looking at is uh, on O'Reilly. So the, the piece that was um, authored by Hilary Mason, DG Patil and Mike Caddis on ethics and data really outlines the principles of why we need to do it and the approaches that we should take and some principles and checklists and toolkits to, to test that out. So you mentioned courses at university that deal with that subject. So how are they structured? Are they building on these tool sets? Are they building on this on the frameworks that you just mentioned? I think to be honest, there's a way to go so far in terms of the university offerings to students. From from my understanding so far, probably it's more in the academic experience of ethical understanding of data and mixed with some of the regulation piece. Either needs to evolve through academia or another mechanism to think about this through the lens of as a person coming out of university who will be developing products or doing analysis, here's the toolkit that we should use. So I think there is a way to go on that one, to be honest. Do you think we also need research data engineers? Data engineering, AI and ML has been there for a while again, but maybe not formally recognized in a similar way to the research software engineering initiatives that are currently underway. You know, through the various waves of attention on AI and machine learning, there's great expertise in our universities and in our academics in this space, maybe not formally pulled together. You can think about many of the stories we see, the likes of Google and Amazon and Netflix, you know, they are hiring, you know, their job specs will be for a research data scientist or a research engineer. Probably collectively, there isn't an organization that represents that and fosters that as a role or a set of roles. Um, that I've seen. So I think it would be a, a useful thing because it's hard to or challenging to transition from being deep into re research, whether it's software engineering or AI, and then being able to apply that into those environments such as Amazon or, or others. A network of these people helping each other, I think, would be a really useful thing as, as we move forward. Hopefully see that in future. So if I were to start embarking on that route, you know, as a research software engineer, and I want to go into data engineering and data science. What do you recommend I do? Where should I start? I wouldn't go straight into it. I would start to build a network and just ask people what their experience in working in that field is. What are the mm -hmm. things you really love doing? 
what are the things that really annoy them what's the realities what's their what's been their path and if you can find somebody who's come from research software engineering into that all the better but get get some diverse views and what i found is the community both in scotland and globally to be honest are really open to sharing their experience so don't be afraid to to reach out get some input on that and then secondly is then on the basis of that and your thoughts is formulate the path that you want to take do you want to develop your skills and can you do that in your current role and working with your your manager and organization uh, as a development career path or do you want to take time out to have some dedicated time to study a particular course or do you want to look at doing some online top-ups etc so it's really about planning your course of action to get to that point third point that we'd add is it's on the journey to doing that and we encourage a lot of the students to do this as well is is develop your own portfolio so as you're learning build examples that you've got in github and other places that you can demonstrate to people in the future that show your ability to learn your willingness to learn and, and some of the great things that you're doing because ultimately that helps demonstrate when you're going for your next role uh, whether it's in industry or in research the sorts of things that you have done and that you're interested in doing we talked about uh, education in the university and educating people to become data scientists and uh, data engineers. But what about research itself? So we have a lot of research projects nowadays use software and hence the role of a software engineer in that area. But um, do you see also uh, a growth in research projects applying machine learning and AI techniques and technologies and data engineering, in fact, for their research project? Do we see a growth there as well, not just in the industry? I think we do. And we, you know, there's lots more funding opportunities for research becoming available, focusing on research and data and AI. There's definitely an uptick there. I think there's a tension though, and that tension it is with industry. So in what sense? In the sense of the talent industry are willing and, and want those skills and will pay a lot of money for them. Uh, and I think what we'll globally now is that industry will pay a significant amount for that talent. There's a lot of challenges. Do I stay in research on a certain salary or do I go somewhere else for three times that amount? And so I think a concern that I've seen identified across the world is is an inverted commas a brain drain. So, you know, it's that challenge to academia to can we hold on to our top research talent and drive the field forward or do they get attracted into industry uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast now brian and there are usually two questions that i asked and the first one is at the end of your career what do you hope you have achieved by then that's a deep question i, I think through the lens of what i'm involved with just now uh, and i think that the team that i work with are involved in if, if we were to look back I think it's we wanted to be part of something that enabled the country to really benefit from these technologies. Our children and their children would look back and say, actually, you know, my father and mother's generation, they really set us up for being successful with technology in both the societal and the economic piece. I think looking back, it's about can we do the best work that we can do and challenge ourselves to create the legacy that we want to create for the future generation. Great answer, Brian. Finally, uh, when you're not leading Data Lab, what do you like to do outside? I have two children, so that uh, keeps busy with family life. When I have some time, I uh, I like to do some 
drumming. So uh, being in lockdown, I'm in the spare room, which means I iterate between working on my laptop and going onto the drum kit, which is great to, to limber up. Uh, and also back to the art piece, and I haven't been doing it so much lately, but I really got into printmaking and oh, wow. printing and calligraphy and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So yeah, keeping the, the art stuff going. So I think that just really helps to trigger the kind of creative thinking in your mind. That sounds very exciting. Well, thank you very much, Brian, for your time today. And I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye. <laughs>